Welcome to Jim Lang's Retire Secure Podcast, where smart money talks. Throughout his career, Jim Lang has made it a priority to provide his clients, readers, and friends with useful, cutting-edge information, as well as peer-reviewed financial and tax planning strategies, so that they can make the most educated decisions and really get the most out of what they've got. We hope you enjoy the following special read broadcast from the Lang Vault. Please stay with us until the end so you don't miss more information on how we can help you protect your wealth and ensure your family's financial security for the next generation. And now, Jim Lang. So we actually have a question now uh, from the live room. And um, I think I'd like to start by asking Adam for uh, his feedback on it. And then if anyone else, Jim or Larry wants to add, that's awesome too. So Ching asks, uh, Larry and Adam have mentioned tax loss harvesting on several occasions. The question is, how can one find compatible funds for tax loss harvesting? Great question. Uh, It's quite easy. A lot of the fund families we use, such as Bridgeway or DFA or any of the others, they have very similar funds. So I'll give you a very specific answer. In March of 2020, we tax loss harvested three or four times on the way down because we have tolerance bands. So we don't do it by calendar. We do it if you're out of tolerance, say within 5%. And of course, in March of 2020, that happened a lot. So we might sell, for example, the Bridgeway small cap value, which is a preferred fund of ours. We would sell the Bridgeway small cap value. We would buy the DFA small cap value. We had to do it again. We would maybe go into uh, another either DFA tax advantaged funds because they have some, or we might drop into an AQR fund or a Vanguard fund. So all of the different asset classes we have, there's no shortage of funds that are so similar that we're not sacrificing much. Larry? Yeah, the only thing I would add is uh, that you have to... uh, wait 31 days before you can swap back into the same fund. Uh, So, and typically you're not going to get a big enough move uh, for the market to cause you to rebalance twice or tax loss harvest twice in 31 days. So we're typically moving between our two favorite funds, the one that's most preferred. And then we always want to have a second backup that we're willing to hold for a very long time, because sometimes, uh, much more frequently than people know, uh, markets incur big moves. Uh, on average, markets move about 10% in a month, almost once a year. Uh, so what can happen is you sell one fund and buy the other as you're harvesting losses, and then the market jumps 10%, and you don't want to sell that and take a short-term capital gain on a big uh, gain like that. So you want to make sure the fund that you buy is one you're willing to hold for a very long time. Uh, that's really important. That's why we manage these things closely. There's a small gain. We'll move back uh, to the preferred fund. If the gain is very large, we're more likely to sit with the fund that's a really close substitute. And and now, Adam, I'm going to ask a question that you probably hate that you get from clients. So how much is this all going to save me 
in taxes? Yeah, great question. Uh, and again, <laughs> I'll go back to 2020 because it's fresh in my mind and I'm sure everybody else's. If you had a million dollars in equity with us, uh, say February 1st, April 1st, you had about 700,000, maybe a little less, but we harvested all the way down. So we got you $300,000 in tax deductions at 20%, call that 60,000 in real savings. And I'll use that question, Jim, to talk about the ROI because many people ask about our fees on this. On that million dollars, you would have paid us $10,000 that year, right? 1% on a million. So we gave you a 6X ROI, which to me makes it a no-brainer. Not to mention everything else that you and our firm does yep. for the client. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Great, so this next question comes from the live room as well. Diane first asked a question, just a general question about, uh, are there any recommendations on how much, if any, of your portfolio should be in precious metals? And then she also asked, would you have a recommendation, silver versus gold, and where would you buy precious metals, if in fact you would recommend them? Yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, let me put it uh, this way. Gold can be viewed on occasion uh, as a... Uh, protection or insurance against some of those left tail or black swan risks. At times it has acted as a safe haven. Uh, and therefore for people who want or need that kind of safe haven, having a small allocation to gold can be helpful. However, the main reason that people own investments are one, they get their hope is to get some expected return or it provides a benefit like an inflation hedge. Uh, so let, and that's the main reason I hear why people want to buy gold is it's a good inflation hedge. And the fact of the matter is if you have a very long horizon, like a century or so, gold has been a great inflation hedge. Uh, someone did a study and looked back at the time when Jesus walked the earth, uh, an ounce of gold, <laughs> bought a nice suit of clothes for a Roman centurion. Today, an ounce of gold buys a nice suit maybe for a Wall Street banker. Uh, and so you've had over 2,000 years of investment in gold and you got zero real return. You know, to me, that's a lousy investment. I wouldn't even call it an investment. I think of it more about insurance policy. But then let's address the issue is, is gold an insurance hedge, which it worked over the last 2,200 years, uh, or sorry, 2,000 years. Is it a good hedge over your investment horizon? And let's think of people having, say, a 20-year horizon. Sadly, there are 20-year periods, uh, such as from 1980 through 2002, when gold lost almost 90% of its real value. As the price collapsed uh, from above 800 down to under 300, and inflation was running at 4% a year. To me, I don't know how anyone could consider gold an inflation hedge or anything as an inflation hedge if it could lose over a 22 year period 
almost 90% of its value. So my recommendation personally is don't own gold, wear it. <laughs> I've never heard that. I like it. I, yeah, I really like that. I also like the uh, longitudinal study of the uh, value of gold since the time of Christ. That's, that's a really nice yeah. pull. Uh, on the other hand, there have been periods. Gold is an investment, if you will, using that term, that tends to go through exceptionally long periods of really poor performance and then short bursts when it does really well because inflation is spiking. And you saw it do well uh, you know, from the 70s to, uh, right up till Paul Volcker stamped out inflation and then gold collapsed and stayed down for 23 years. And then we had another bout of monetary ease and fiscal stimulus and gold took off. Uh, but look, I mean, last year was another good example, right? Inflation took off. We ran at 7% and gold fell about 5%. So that's losing something like 12% in real terms. That's not an inflation edge. If you want an inflation edge, buy the only true inflation edge, which are treasury inflation protected securities. That's a much better inflation edge. In fact, it's a perfect hedge because it moves one for one with inflation. The unfortunate part is because real rates are negative, you're guaranteed to lose money in real terms because tip yields today are roughly, let's say, minus 1%. So you're guaranteed to lose 1% a year. In return, you're getting inflation protection against unexpected inflation. So last year, you know, you got a 7% return minus the 1% uh, insurance premium there, if you will. So you got six. That certainly was better than sitting in cash, which earned you zero. Uh, so Tips should be thought of as an inflation hedge, but currently you're paying an insurance premium because there's no real return. There are other times when tips were great investments, like in 2008, when they were yielding three or 4%, you were getting paid to take inflation insurance. That's really you know, an ideal investment. And I will add one quick thing. When I interviewed Jack Bogle of Vanguard, he talked about the difference between investments and speculation. And his thinking is, well, gee, gold is really a speculator's game, not an investor's game. And he actually thought that the game should be investments, not speculation. Yeah, same I, I think that's reasonable. Because yeah, same the conclusion, investment has to have a positive expected real return. And as we said, gold has had none for over 2000 years. Let me add one other thing. I think the best hedge against inflation now, uh, it's not a pure hedge because there are economic cycle risks, but you're getting paid a lot in terms of premiums to do it is we uh, typically allocate a portion of our clients' portfolios to two funds that invest in what is called private debt, one is private debt of middle market companies that aren't big enough to issue public securities. Uh, that fund is run by a company called Cliffwater, which manages huge amounts, $100 billion for private pension plans, endowments, 
and it is currently yielding about seven and a half percent. And it is a floating rate debt. So there's no inflation risk. If inflation goes up, interest rates then, you know, will follow. Uh, so that's great. Uh, and the 20-year track record of their index of these securities has had default losses of about 1% a year. And that includes the 2001 recession, the 2008 recession, the COVID recession. Now, there is some downside risk. During COVID, the fund fell 3%, but equities were dropping 35%, and they certainly aren't a good inflation hedge in the short term. The other fund um, is run by a company called Stone Ridge. Uh, it invests in consumer and small business and student loans. Uh, it's currently returning a, a little over 10%. Uh, and its average maturity is only a little over a year. So it would move up quickly uh, as inflation moved up, the yields would go up. That fund uh, you know, is another good way, we think, having both of them diversify some of that risk. That fund also lost about 3% during COVID. We think in an 08, each of these funds would have lost middle to high single digits. So they're not as safe as, say, a CD or a treasury, uh, but you're getting huge risk premiums now, uh, you know, depending upon which of those funds, 75 to 10%. I personally have, you know, much larger allocations to those funds because uh, I'm more comfortable bearing the illiquidity risk. You can only get out uh, quarterly, and you may be restricted depending upon demand to 5% of the fund each quarter. Uh, so there, it's something called an interval fund. And that structure is new and it was created to allow investors to access vehicles that only the Harvards and Yales of the world were able to access as private vehicles. But you can't have a daily liquid mutual fund that invests in a seven year loan to corporations or a three-year uh, loan to consumers, uh, you know. So they created this interval fund structure, uh, which gives you access to these illiquid assets and large illiquidity premiums. So we typically will have, you know, 5% or so to each of these funds for some people a bit more, and that gives them the inflation hedge with a big uh, premium, but some economic cycle risk. So, so, Larry, I have a question. You know, as you know, I'm a Buckingham client myself, and that's where all my and my wife's money is invested. And I am invested in both of those funds. And I guess my question is, is why would they do so much better? Why wouldn't banks see the opportunity they, to say, okay, we can lend to these people and we can make money? Why would you know, let's say this private firm be kind of have the market on that instead of the big banks. I mean, the big banks aren't stupid. Don't they see, let's even just say the mid-level firms, you know, not the, not the giants, not the consumers, but, you know, let's call it mid-sized business. Why wouldn't banks get in that market and they make the money instead of letting this firm make the money where, frankly, investors like you, me, and some of our 
uh, clients make money? Well, it's a great question. The most of the answer, although it's a bit complex, we'll try to keep it simple. Most of the answer is a result of the great financial crisis and the Dodd-Frank bill and the pressure on banks. Many of the big banks who are big in this business, middle market corporate lending, were desperately short of capital, were forced to raise capital, cut back on their lending, and private lenders stepped in uh, to that void, and they could actually do it much cheaper than banks can. They don't have the same regulatory environment. They don't have the branch infrastructure and everything else. So they end up, uh, and by the way, they also tend to be responsive much faster. So you uh, you have a private uh, debt team uh, that gets a request from, say, a company with $50 million in sales. They can turn that answer around much faster than a bank that has to go through various loan committee approvals and senior sign-offs. And so uh, that business has really been taken away from the banks. And the problem is smaller banks, you think, might step in, but Dodd-Frank uh, made them so expensive to operate that you've seen virtually no new small banks uh, started in the U.S. since Dodd-Frank and the collapse of hundreds, if not thousands, of other smaller banks. So the, what was left is private firms have stepped into that void uh, and created this market. And these loans are illiquid, and that creates a big illiquidity premium, Jim. And what's good is you recognize that in any one year, you may want to access five or maybe 10% of your portfolio. Maybe it's a bit more because you want to do a house addition or something like that. But the other majority of your portfolio, you can invest in less liquid assets. So that illiquidity premium is basically a free lunch. Let me give you one simple example of that. If you Banks are in the business of, uh, let's say, having credit card debt. So they give people credit cards, people rack up debt. And let's say, for argument's sake, the yield on that credit card is 16%. Now, you don't earn 16%. Maybe you think there'll be 5 or 6% credit losses. So you got 10, and it costs you to originate, you get 8. But when you go to sell that and securitize it in what's called an asset-backed security, and Wall Street then markets that to pension plans or looking for higher yielding assets, that yield drops to say 6% or 5 There's a 2 to 3% illiquidity premium because once you turn it into a public security, people can trade it and they want liquidity and they're willing to pay up for it. So you get that big illiquidity premium that's there by willing to accept the fact that you no longer have a daily liquid asset. That's why we like these vehicles, because for our clients, they don't, you know, they have margins and assets that they can, you know, utilize. They can allocate some portion, even a significant portion, to less liquid assets and capture the premiums the way the Harvards and the Yales have been doing for decades. Adam, let me ask you a question. Let's say that you had a client who was a little bit concerned that the market was overheated 
and they didn't want to have, let's say, their normal allocation in the stock market. On the other hand, um, they're not necessarily a great fan of having, you know, investments at one or two percent. Let's assume that they are willing to get their liquidity from other areas, um, and maybe they're even hanging on to their higher than average earning TIAA. Is that something that you like to use? Um, I, again, it's not an equity replacement, but maybe somewhere between an equity and a very low paying fixed income asset. Sure. Uh, first off, we don't cookie cutter anything at Buckingham. So the each client determines that uh, allocation, if you will. But we have anywhere from zero to 20% in the alternatives that Larry mentioned. We have a few others that we haven't talked about. But uh, to Larry's point, with interest rates where we are, if some clients have the desire and the ability to take on more risk, we put uh, anywhere between, say, 2 and 4% into each one of those, right? So you're not loading up 10% on lending, you're only doing 3%. And you pick and choose which ones are appealing to you. And, and do we have a track record of how they have done over time? Sure. Uh, I see Larry looking, he might be pulling something up. Yeah, uh, uh, I can tell you, uh, Lendex, we expected, that's the Stone Ridge student consumer uh, lending product. Uh, and small business loans. We expected that over the long term to generate four to five percent above the risk-free rate over the long term, which we thought was a good premium. So if T-bills were two percent, we thought this fund in the long term would generate six to seven with very little maturity risk because the average maturity tends to be about a year there. It's actually done much better than that and currently is yielding about 10% since inception. I think it's now like six years, it's earned about 11%. I think that's too high an expectation longer term. Uh, I think that you know will come down, but right now you're getting over 10. Cliffwater, we think uh, that fund uh, should be in that same range, four to 5% above the risk-free rate but it too has outperformed. It's a newer fund that's only got a couple of years, but it's returned, I think last year, like 10%, uh, currently yielding about seven and a half, I think. And I think longer term, I would look for about a 5% or so risk premium. But right now, people are demanding lots of liquidity. And so you're getting these big illiquidity premiums. And, and, and let me ask you this. So you said Harvard and Yale have been doing this for a long time. Why wouldn't Vanguard do it? Uh, Vanguard, uh, one, likes to play in space that has massive scale. That's number one. They have so much money coming in, they have to be able to deploy it. That's why they tend as a, just as an example, if you look at their small cap fund, versus the fund we use, Bridgeway, for example, its average market capitalization is like a billion. Vanguard's is like five billion. It's not even small cap, but they can't play in that very small cap space, which has higher expected returns because they have too much money there. This is a limited space where you could manage maybe five billion or 10 billion. Vanguard could not do that. Second thing is, 
Vanguard deals with the general retail public, and these interval funds are much more complex. You have the issue of explaining how you can get your capital out, and I don't think they want to be in that business. They want to be in a very simple, you know, plain vanilla. You can get your money today or tomorrow if you need it. This is much more complex, um, requires much more education for investors to make sure they truly understand. And most people are not going to read the prospectuses, let's face it. You need someone like Adam to sit down and walk you through the pros and cons and make sure you truly understand the risk. So that would be my answer to this. The Cliffwater Fund right now is the only one of its kind uh, that's public, that, that I'm aware of. They've got a 20-year-plus track record of managing money in this space. Now, here's what's interesting, Jim. To me, this is the number one best investment in the world right now wow. uh, in terms of risk-adjusted returns expected. And here's why I say that. If you look at Vanguard's high-yield fund, okay, that the assets there in the long term have slightly worse credit default history than Cliffwater's assets. And the Vanguard High Yield Fund, last I looked, was yielding a bit under 4%. And you have maturity risk, four or five-year average maturity. This fund is yielding 7.5%, so call it 3.5%, 4% higher, with similar credit risk, actually slightly better based on history. And you have no inflation risk. So to me, you're getting this massive premium for illiquidity, which for you, Jim, for that portion of your portfolio, is a free lunch. You don't need the liquidity for that, say, 5% of your portfolio. And I'd just like to close on this, if you don't mind, Erica. Uh, one thing we do, and Larry has talked about this, written about it, what we're looking for are non-correlated investments, non-correlated rate return. I just pulled up my portfolio because this is a wonderful uh, opportunity to see if what we uh, recommend is working. Past performance is not indicative of future, and this is a very small period of time. I just pulled up year-to-date returns because as we know, the market, the equities are going down. The equities in my portfolio are down 4% year-to-date. The alternatives in my portfolio are up five. Fixed income is down a half of a percent. So again, don't know that this is gonna work going forward, but what we've designed is working as we had hoped. And it sounds like you also have a very thorough and immediate way of, of checking those. It's all our clients, right. Yeah, and by the way, I never mind. And when you guys ask each other questions or, <laughs> you know, expand, I mean, it's great. It gives me more time, you know, uh, to, to not be doing my hosting duties, which <laughs> is nice. We hope you enjoyed this special edition of the Lying Money Hour, where smart money talks. If you've discovered the answers to your questions and would like to schedule an appointment with Jim, please call our offices at one 800 387-1129. That number again is 1-800-387-1129. Or if you would like to attend one of Jim's upcoming webinars, go to paytaxeslater.com forward slash 2020 webinars 
That address again is paytaxeslater.com forward slash 2020 webinars. That's 2020 webinars.